0: Hey, this is Brendan Yagama, and you're listening to CinePod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: You're listening to the cinematography podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts... Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going pretty well. How about you? Uh, This is super weird. We're in the same room again, which we never are for these. We're like, we used to always be in the same room. And then I don't know if you heard about it, but there was this pandemic. What? It was... What? A pandemic? It it was a serious (laughs) bummer. I got as sick as I've ever been in my entire life. It was awful. And now we're all allowed and encouraged to pretend that it isn't still fully raging. That's right. Uh, Google had 145 people all come down
2: with COVID in the last couple weeks.
1: And uh, not to go down too far of a rabbit hole, but they just recently came out with the bivalent vaccine, which- I'm so excited. I can't wait to get the bivalent vaccine, so I'm protected against OG COVID and also- New G. Oh, uh, Omicron. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And also 5G. Wait, what? That's right. And Bill Gates. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so so Ben, who is on the show today? It is Brendan Wigama, an awesome cinematographer. He shot a a sort of a sci-fi rom-com. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, called Moonshot. Definitely worth checking out right now. He also shot the Child's Play remake. Uh, I know you saw that. Big time, yeah. He's definitely, uh, I wouldn't say on the rise, but I'd I'd say his his career is- He's risen. He's already there, but his career is definitely on an upward trajectory. Really cool guy. I think people will really enjoy hearing his whole story. Awesome.
2: Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. First up is our close focus, and I don't know if it's quite a bugaboo or a bone to pick, but every once in a while we do the sort of thing where we don't necessarily talk about something that is timely and topical, but instead talk about something that uh, seems to be like an undercurrent of our society, which Mm. is kind of running. And I will say that I am getting the feeling now, because there are so many... You know, gurus and classes online trying to teach people how to make films or, you know, all these different sorts of things that like turn you, Joe Schmo, average, you know, uh, homemaker into an incredible filmmaker. Mm -hmm. You know, the the different sorts of information that is at your fingertips and almost all of them revolve around the idea that, hey, you're just a cell phone away from a professional career as a filmmaker. But I got to I got through a little cold water here because dragging your phone through a puddle is not filmmaking and making a film is so incredibly I, I difficult. I beg to differ, man. You, you I, do? I, okay. I think,
1: I think dragging your phone through a puddle is definitely <laughs> filmmaking.
2: Well, if you watch Instagram, there's enough people out there who who say, like, you know, hashtag filmmaking and they dragged their, their phone through a, well, through a puddle. Uh, it is so incredibly difficult to make something, especially something narrative or documentary, with intention, with the intention mm-hmm. that goes in into making a movie, It which goes into making a documentary, which goes into creating great art. Anyone can buy a gimbal. Anyone can, you know, throw a camera around. I see a lot of people doing the Insta 360, which now is like, boy, talk about uh, very little that's being done on the day and almost everything being done in post-production. But I think that the perception- Shoot shoot
1: it in post. Shoot it in post, I I would call that shoot it in post.
2: I think the perception from sort of like the average lay person out there is, is that filmmaking's easy. Anybody can do this. And I think that's certainly true that anyone can do it. It's a little bit like Ratatouille. Anyone can cook, well anyone can can be a filmmaker. You made a film, you're you're a filmmaker. But the discipline that's involved and the craft and everything that goes into it is so complex if you wanna do it you know, in a classical sense, if you want to do it in the, I made it with intention and I made it to make sense and I made it to flow from beginning to end. Ben, what's what's your feeling about all this? You you have any opinion on the idea of the new school of like, I dragged my phone through a puddle versus the classic of like, oh yeah, we spent four years in development just even working on the, you know. Well,
1: it's just, I mean, it's just two different worlds. Years ago, a guy who I went to film school with named Chad Saley. I remember Chad telling me that uh, you know, like his kid at the time, who was a teenager, was like had no interest in watching television and only watched stuff on YouTube. And you know, it's the uh, around the time of the rise of people like PewDiePie. Renowned neo-Nazi video gamer PewDiePie, <laughs> Logan Paul. <laughs> Lo- well, those kinds of people are even later, and and like you know, the thing is that like influencer culture. The- so is
2: it just semantics then? Is it semantics that the term filmmaker has just been co-opted by anyone out there who has a phone now? Is that is that what it is? Well,
1: I mean, you can't argue that the quality of the video that you get on even in a very average cell phone these days is pretty awesome. I mean, like, you know, we're regularly seeing people on television who are Zooming in on their phone and it's being broadcast around the world. The quality of the picture that you can get from the phone is pretty exceptional. And the real question is, can we live in a world where people who call themselves kind of quasi-filmmakers are just making uh, goofy shit for TikTok or whatever comes after TikTok or or even YouTube? And uh, So
2: so Steven Spielberg and the goofy shit on TikTok... Same same job same career. Uh, no no not at all. <laughs> okay. But and and I
1: think that there's a, a, actually like a small collection of influencers who are able to make money doing this kind of stuff or YouTube celebrities. And the difference also is like if you went and saw Raiders of the Lost Ark when it came out in whatever 1981. You didn't feel like you had a personal relationship with Steven Spielberg. You maybe were a fan of his work, but when you are following an influencer, you feel like you know them. You, the, the, the emotions you feel to them are like if a good friend of yours was talking to you. So PewDiePie's followers feel like they know him? Yes. huh? I mean, that's what it is. And I would hear stories from my friends with kids who were like, yeah, my, my son sets up his computer and watches PewDiePie, and in the next monitor he's playing the same game. So he's kind of, you know, like you can't make it sync up because it's a video game, but he's getting like wise-ass comments. There's another thing, though, that kind of falls into what you're talking about. And some of these are things that I'm a fan of, which are things like No Film School, or I've talked about on here before, Cinecom.net, or Corridor Crew, or Film Riot. You know, there's this one dude named Steve Ramsden, who's this kind of young British guy who shows very DIY ways, to do very high-end shit. What I like about all of these people that I've just mentioned is that they're inspiring people to make interesting movies, but uh, especially uh, Cinecom will also sometimes say, like, we love this one influencer on Instagram or whatever who makes these surreal videos that are like a 15-second film that are that's surreal, but is it filmmaking? I don't know.
2: Do you think that the perception, especially amongst, let's say, younger, newer producers, is that... All of this is easy, all of it is trivial, and there isn't the respect that filmmaking deserves for actually being a craft, a craft I, that's honed over decades well, or a I, lifetime.
1: I think all the people I'm talking about are deeply respecting the craft and demonstrating that technique can be accessible. You can learn technique, or you can pick up technique, or like, uh, not to keep bringing them up, but Cinecom will like see a shot in a music video that they're like, hey, it's a cool shot, we're going to do our version of it, we're going to figure it out. And that's kind of cool. You know, Corridor crew this week decided to make a trailer for the Batgirl movie that got canceled. So they made their own trailer and it, and they kind of deeply dive into all the techniques and all the ways that they figured out how to do it. And it's kind of fascinating. And it is the same kind of R&D process you go through to make any film. On the flip side of that, making a movie, be it a feature or documentary, I mean, there are some people who seem from the outside from where I sit to have a much easier time than I do of of doing it I had a, a meeting just last week with a producer on a script that I have been trying to get made forever and it's something that I'm like angry at the world that no one has made this movie yet because I feel like it's a really solid kind of a fastball like I think it's so commercial I don't understand why it hasn't gotten made but like I got to meet with a pretty kick ass producer and you know we'll see where it goes but it's like these are all the really slow development Processes that we all go through to get a movie. And the idea of a movie is, it's a very different thing. Because you can release your own shit on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, there's no middleman. But if you're making a movie, like, I mean, absolutely anyone can make, could you make a movie on your phone? People have done it. There's no one stopping you from making a movie on your phone. The thing that is a real stopping point is who the fuck is going to watch it? Like, how are you even going to get anyone to watch it? it? Let's say you made the biggest masterpiece of all time and you made it on your phone and you made it with no-name actors and, and you know, whatever. How do you market it? How do you get it out? And that side of the business is not as nimble as, like, I'm just going to upload some goofy stuff that I made up onto YouTube. And so you can get a YouTube audience. And I feel like, uh, to kind of loop back to what my conversation with my friend Chad, it's like, Those people are filmmakers. They don't make the films that I want to make. They might even make stuff that I want to watch. Not those particular guys, but people who are making this stuff. Some of it's stuff that I enjoy watching. Uh, The closest I've ever come to making that kind of stuff is when I did 20 Seconds to Live, which was a web series. But we weren't releasing a new episode every week. We were doing seasons and trying to get the production value that we wanted because, honestly... For me, like making a film means I want it to look a certain way. I want it to sound a certain way. I want a certain amount of control. And if you're making even making a podcast like we did with Video Palace or the project that I'm currently doing for Audible, where it's all like full cast, full sound design, like, you know, you're making a product for an audience that's just a very different thing than. Making something that's more like a conversation with your audience, and I'm not saying that making a movie isn't a conversation with your audience, but you know what I'm saying? Like, no, I th- I think what you're what you're saying is that the term should be much looser than yeah. to just
2: define, you know, one particular type of thing. It should be uh, a very inclusive term, and that they are different disciplines that neither, di- sure, yeah, that, that both have and they their can own- feed each
1: other. I mean, like, I'm not saying you couldn't be good at one and the other, or you couldn't start in one and move to the other. Certainly, lots of people do. I guess I feel like what I'm getting from you is a judgment on the very basic idea that that is filmmaking, and it's like, in terms of, are you pointing a camera at somebody? Are you editing stuff? Are you sound designing? Whatever. Like, yeah, some better than others? Maybe, I think we just need another term. And maybe we, could just get,
2: maybe we can make a third term. I know YouTube's pushed the idea of creator really hard. Like creator yeah. is, is like, what are you? You're a creator. And
1: what, what are you doing? Well, you're creating. I guess that's. But. Uh, well, and I have personally on here raved about the idea of like calling the stuff we make content, including this podcast that we're currently you and I are making. Like I get mad at the idea that you're making the filler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're making the stuff that goes into the thing. And to me, if there's a problem with YouTube or TikTok or whatever, it's like the deference is paid to the platform itself. And then like people are expected to just fill it up with content, fill it up with content. But would you call, and I'm sure that some people do, but like, would you call a Martin Scorsese film or a Jane Campion film content content? It's not. I mean, like these are movies. To me, uh, I, I can't. Are we spe- talking about the Irishman? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, it was on, it was on Netflix, and I do feel like Netflix is like a content. They, they are uh, they're, they're. A, a content delivery device. They are in the same sure. way that a cigarette is a is a nicotine <laughs> delivery device. That's right. So, but I mean, like the thing is, like I don't want content from Martin Scorsese. I want movies. I want like to me a new movie from Martin Scorsese, whether I love it or hate it is going to be and I have loved and liked and disliked his movies over the years but like it's an event like he's an artist I'm going to go see his work the same with uh, Catherine Bigelow or Jane Campion or Jordan Peele like any of those people. You know
2: I think I actually really would like a vlog though from uh, from
1: Martin Scorsese.
2: I think that might be fun. I'd tune in every day. D-
1: David Lynch kind of has I know it, David Lynch does kind of, he does
2: yeah. he does the weather he does his Yeah. 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 Well <laughs>
1: see that's David Lynch doing content and then David Lynch also does movies and TV shows. I think he's doing a lot more content these days, but I could be probably. wrong. Yeah. Anyway. He's an old man. Well,
2: well, Ben, we should probably get to the interview. Let's do it.
1: The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. Uh, I am here today with Brendan Ugama. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Brendan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. For anyone who hasn't seen it on HBO Max, uh, Moonshot dropped just, uh, what, three months ago? on uh, March 31st it came out. And it kind of springboards me into my first question about your work, because as I've watched your work, I've noticed you have a tendency to be the person who's chosen to mix genres. In that case, it's a science fiction story, but it's also kind of a romantic comedy. I, I don't know, it's more romantic than comedy, but there's rom-com aspects to it. Is that by design? Is that something that, that you're specifically drawn to or is that something that you've drifted into? And I feel like a lot of people are like, no, I, I wasn't a horror guy and now here I am making all the horror movies. So I'm just curious. No, I mean, I, I definitely haven't tried to like focus
0: on mixed genre projects necessarily. You know, one project being like rom comy kind of sci-fi in that way, but I've definitely tried to make sure that not every project's the same, you know, and I'm going from genre mm. to genre. I like to try to mix things up to make sure that things stay fresh and I'm not just kind of doing the same thing over and over again or relying on the same instincts that I've used in the past. And, you know, I like to try to make sure that I'm always thinking in new ways and, and approaching things differently.
1: Well, let me ask you something though. I feel like when someone, uh, again, to, to use horror as an example, and you've done horror, but to use horror as an example, if someone's like a proven commodity in, in the horror world There's going to be pressure from the industry, from their agent. And honestly, like if you're super known for doing super grisly horror and you're like, I'd like to do a light romantic comedy, like everyone's going to be like, how do we know you can do it? Which obviously you can do it. But how do you make it so within your career that you're not repeating yourself, that you're not being called for the same stuff over and over again?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think one thing is to not do too many of like if you're known for horror that you haven't done. 10 in a row and then you're trying to break out into, yeah. you know, comedy, that might be a little tougher, I think, for some people. But, you know, if you keep it fresh from the beginning and you're always trying to turn things over into new genres and new stories that inspire you, then I think it's a little bit easier. And I think, I would hope that most directors, most filmmakers, most producers that are, that really understand what a, you know, a cinematographer can bring to a film, that they're, there's so much more than just like, how it's going to be lit. You know, it's not yeah. just that you have to rely on, you've only done horror, so you can only, you only know how to light it that way. You're, you know, if they're, if they're worried that you've done child's play and you're going to walk onto a comedy and make it look like that, then that's a problem on their end, I think, you know, like, mm. and I think most filmmakers understand that. Good filmmakers really, really know that a cinematographer is there to serve that script and that story and help bring that to life. And that you look into that script and that story and you figure out what it is and how it should feel, and then you can use your knowledge and your tools to, to make it that, you know? So I, I feel like we're, we shouldn't be looked at from the last projects we did, but I know that happens often. I think part of it also is to not just take the first job that comes to you right after, you know, like if you did a, a horror and that's what's being offered, you don't have to take it right away. If you can hold unless you really like it and really want to, of course, but if you can hold out and find something that you're really passionate about and fight for that, you know, work towards making sure that that happens. You know, talk with the director, explain to them, like, why you're so interested in it and explain that, hey, you know, this is different for me. And that's what excites me. You know, I, I love that. It's not what I did last time.
1: So let's go back. The The big question I always want to know from everybody is what was the moment in your life when you realized cinematography was a thing you could do, that that was a career path and, it, and the interest sparked for you? Yeah, I mean,
2: I.
0: Always was into photography and image making and art and everything to do with imagery. I I feel like in high school, and I didn't really know at one, at first, I didn't really know what part of filmmaking I wanted to be in. I kind of knew I always wanted to be in to film. You know, I didn't know uh, that cinematography was really a thing at one point. I didn't have any family in, in the film industry, anyone who could really teach me. I went, I ended up after high school working with a group of guys who were shooting motocross videos because I had just grown up, you know, me and my friends skateboarding and snowboarding when we were in high school, we would film ourselves sometimes and just kind of, you know, bring out the digital camera and shoot some stuff and play with the footage and that kind of thing. And they brought me on to shoot this motocross video that I'd spent a year working on with them. And after Whoa. that, I knew that I wanted to keep going in that world, uh, but I wanted to do it on film sets. You know, that was when I was like, I know that this isn't what I want. I don't want to be kind of just doing extreme sports. You know, it was kind of fun. It was you not know, telling the stories. And that's where I knew I wanted to be. So, I ended up going to film school, studying cinematography and just kind of going from there.
1: Where'd you go to film school?
0: I went to a place called Capilano's in Vancouver and it was great because it was intensive. It was one year with a bunch of like-minded filmmakers. Everyone wanted to do the same thing. So it really helped kind of push that in for me. But at first when I got there, I wanted to explore everything. I wanted to kind of keep looking at all my options as director, and you know, producer, whatever mm. classes you take there. But. I always knew, you know, image making was, I was already making films as a,
1: shooting little shorts and things like that. And Outside outside of the motocross stuff you were doing, you were like also shooting shorts. Yeah, yeah. I used to ask a question that I uh, eventually retired cause I, I found it to be kind of a hacky premise. But it, the idea was when you're reading a script, are you seeing it in pictures, like compositions? Or are you seeing it in lighting and kind of trying to suss out what first occurred to you as a creative person when you're interacting with the script? But I'm interested in just kind of understanding your process of like someone hands you a script, where do the creative ideas that are specifically cinematography, where do they come from? Where does your mind tend to want to go first?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I actually try to read it as blankly as possible to understand the story at first. But I, of course you see things, you know, and I, I, yeah. Yeah, there's no way to not. And um, but I try to read it a couple of times before I talk to anyone to really inform myself and understand it the best I can but I definitely feel like when I'm reading the script, I visualize things mostly in the world of composition and and camera, you know, before lighting, Mm -hmm. as I feel like that's just how the story should unfold for, you know, but at the same time, I should say it depends on the, on the moment of of the script I'm reading. Sometimes it's lighting ideas really pop into my head, but I Mm -hmm. I try to not get into that too heavy in the first few passes. I try to keep those in mind and but really just read it to understand it. And then I have the first conversation with the director and really understand what he or she wants to try and do with the film. And from there, then we can really start to formulate it and make it something special and and unique. And that's when I'll then come back with all those ideas and I'll break down the script after I've read it a couple of times and have those conversations. I'm able to, to really, I break it down scene by scene where I'm, I'm dropping images towards it or I'm dropping, you know, just ideas and sketching out things and, And then I'll just go to the director and just say, look, what do you think of this or how, you know, how can we incorporate this? Or does this, does this seem like this is telling the story the way that you're thinking and and we can just kind of formulate it from there and go from there. But I, I definitely try to like come into everything with as much of an open mind as possible before that first meeting with the director, Mm -hmm. you know, the first real creative meeting with the director.
1: Yeah. And uh, and this is maybe serious minutia, but I think this is great advice for people. Like, how do you keep all the ideas organized? Do you do it in a physical notebook? Do you do it digitally somehow? To me, it's like one thing to have a place where you brain dump all the ideas. It's another thing to be like, oh, we're in this scene today, so we had decided that it would be wider angle lenses and bluer backlight, like keeping track of all that stuff. Where do you put it? How do you keep track of it? I do a combination of things. I have it spread out everywhere
0: to start. You know, it's it's in a notebook, handwritten. I use my scriptation. I use folders and images and that kind of thing. But I also do spreadsheets in a way that, where I just kind of, if I have a lot of ideas, I'll just kind of drop the scene heading in there and then just put all my, if there's visual cue, like uh, imagery, I can drop JPEGs in there and that kind of thing. And then I'll, I'll either attach them to the scripts or I'll just kind of bring them on the day and, and try to mm-hmm. kind of reference them. And then in my prep, you know, in the office, I'll have my prep wall where I'll kind of put things up on the wall where I can, help kind of keep things in mind. And, and I feel like after is something that's been kind of thought about enough and uh, discussed enough in the beginning that throughout prep, that by the time you get there, you kind of know exactly what your, your initial plans were, you know, you've set things forward, you talk to your crew, your gaffer, your key grip about ideas and how we're going to achieve it lighting wise and camera wise. So, You know, and every night after we wrap, I always read the next day's work. Just trying to be, I do try to be as organized as possible. I think it's, it's easy to get and get, if it shows real quick and that's one of the potential television that makes it tough is like how quick it can be. You know, that some of these ideas get kind of lost or there's just no time and everyone's, the machine's running and it really is a machine and television. It just kind of drives forward. So you really have to be on top of that stuff. You know, you have to, you have to really try to be as organized as possible.
1: I, I might be coming from an older school mindset a little bit personally, where until maybe 10 years ago, movies were the big creative thing and TV was less so. And over the last decade, maybe maybe a little more, it's gotten to the point where TV is doing some of the most interesting stuff in uh, moving images, period. And your work is a huge part of that. Maybe talk a little bit about the difference between working on a TV series like Riverdale versus a movie like Moonshot or a movie like Child's Play.
0: To me, the main difference is like when you're shooting a film from the very beginning, you know you have your six or eight weeks of prep and you're kind of you're building the world with the entire team, and you know you get your thirty however many days your project is like moonshot I think we did it over thirty six days oh um, I think it was very ambitious, yeah, so we know what's coming up and we you know we're we're really building the world and we're planning everything out for every day until the day we wrap and I love that process because I feel like you're there with the entire team. You're every single decision is important that you're making along the way and nothing goes untouched. You know what I mean? Like nothing goes without discussion. Television, it's so much quicker. Like it, and it really is, especially on a show, like I did Riverdale a while ago now and it was uh, every episode that I did that year. I did season two and then a, a few episodes afterwards, but mostly I did all episodes in season two and it
1: was almost, Every ep- so, so there was no staggering, like a lot of there times. There was no
0: alternating. Yeah, we didn't oh, no alternate Oh, wow.
1: No. How do you, how do you do that? Are you just like churning and churning?
0: You're just, that's the thing. It's like, you know, and and there a lot of shows do alternate. I've done that. Like on truth be told, I did we alternated on uh, other shows I've done. We've alternated, but it was definitely, it's, it's a different way of working, but I enjoy it in some ways. And, and, but the prep side of things gets a little harder. And I have to really rely on my crew a lot. And I send my, you know, I'm, Doing lunchtime meetings with the directors and after work meetings and things like that. And the gaffer and key grip and going on different scouts here and there throughout the day, taking off for a couple hours to see something and they can report back to me on set. And then we can kind of formulate our plans a little more. And that's where it's really important to have people that you know and trust working with you, that you can trust that their instincts are the instincts that you want. And they have you, your ideas and, and their best interests when they're there. Like to show you what was there, knowing what I'm going to want to do with it. But it is a different game because it just moves quicker, and really, you try to you know be as creative as you possibly can. But there's so many things that go into the how the schedules are laid out, and it's usually never the way that you're going to shoot it. It's usually based so much on actors' availability during that time, and and locations, and all these different things. You know, when you do pilots as well, I've done a bunch of pilots, and that's a different process. That's much more like shooting a feature because you're building the world there. You have longer time and prep. You're really getting re- getting used to it, and there's so much emphasis put on everything the way it's going to look and feel to make sure the show works and everyone understands it so i love that process as well it's the same it's very similar
1: well that's the thing like if you're doing a pilot you it's a little bit more like making a feature because that might be the only thing that ever gets made firstly that might you know it has to get picked up so it's sort of a sales pitch for here's how awesome this is gonna be and it'll keep going. But also um, stepping into something like Riverdale, there are certain creative choices that have already been made that you're not gonna change the look of the show fundamentally. And I'm always interested to know where's the creative spark in, in it? I'm not saying that there isn't one, it's obviously outrageously creative, but like how do you stay engaged creatively with something when you're, you're not being asked to imitate something somebody else did, but you're asking to, to be a piece of a continuity yeah
0: yeah i mean i think for me it was like you know when i started that i remember talking with our showrunner roberto and the director who was uh directing that first season premiere and it was like the ideas that we were talking about were were to kind of run within a new way and and really push it you know what i mean like they Mm -hmm. wanted to kind of exaggerate some things that we had done and color wise and things like that so i was they were very open to me bringing as many fresh ideas as possible of course you know it has to fit in the world but I don't think there was any restraints put on me in that way with doing that show and it built into a very good relationship with Roberto because I ended up working with him on a few other projects afterwards Sabrina and uh, another show Katie Keene and you know we were able to really build a lot of trust so he was a, he gave me a lot of trust that allowed me to kind of on the day run with my best instincts. In, mm-hmm. you know, and just kind of, he trusted that what I was going to do would be beneficial to the, to the show. And so I was able to kind of just run as free as possible, uh, I think. But I, you know, my mind, the way I was working was as, as well was like, this is that story and it has to fit into this and, and like, or like, yeah. it has to be this. Otherwise, if it, if I change things too much and wanting, I'm not going to be happy with it. It's not going to, it's not going to be the the right move for the show. You know, it was a, it was a very, Riverdale was a very, it was a great show to to do because it was very fun and very creative and led to a lot of great things. Like afterwards doing, after season two, I went straight into Sabrina. I think I overlapped my prep by like a few days to finish Riverdale to then start Sabrina. And Sabrina was completely different, but it was, you know, an extremely creative and really fun show to do.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about Moonshot, you know, which again is on uh, HBO Max right now. And uh, again, I see an interesting mix of genres happening here. There's kind of a serious sci-fi element that's got a lot of visual effects and all that stuff. And then at the center, you've got basically a romance. And maybe this is a director's decision, but how do you decide how much to lean one way or the other? You know, you could go super hard sci-fi with it and, you know, it could look like Alien. And that's the wrong look for this, but you could go that direction. Or you could go super rom-com and let the science-y stuff feel like more of a backdrop. But I feel like it's got a mix of both going on. Yeah, I mean, one thing we talked about early in prep
0: was, and we just kept kind of reminding ourselves as we were getting into heavy discussions of sci-fi elements and things throughout prep was that at the heart of it no matter what happens at the heart of the film it is about these two characters it is that romance comedy kind of mm-hmm. storyline it's just the setting is in space you know it is on on a rocket ship and, and on mars so it's like no matter how much we keep talking about science fiction we just have to make sure that that doesn't get in the way of the story of um, romance you know them falling in love and yeah. so that was kind of something we always would fall back on in a way or always had in our minds of when it came to the look but at the same time, like for me, I let the settings kind of do a lot of, of that work. Like we're on a spaceship and I would talk with the production designer early in prep about, you know, how we could light it in camera with, with his design work. You know, that's how we got the looks of like the panels that would come in and all the, in the hallways and everything kind of coming, all the lighting being interactive in, inside of Soviet's room and in the main room there. And it was just all through just trying to build as much in and so any kind of science fiction feeling that's in there based on the set design is just a nature of it, I I feel like. And so for me, it's like, I try to honor the story as much as possible and uh, let those elements kind of be there and embrace them as much as we could. There are certain scenes, I think, where you really, there's nothing you can do, like it it just felt more science fiction because we're floating in space with a rocket ship behind us you know like like those scenes where they're kind of floating up to mars there's nothing that is what it is so it's going to feel very science fiction compared to just them sitting inside a room talking
1: well like there's that one shot and it's in the trailer i think where it's just like their two bodies floating in front of mars but it's it, it looks like a postcard it looks wrong it you figured out a way to make it feel romantic even though it's as sci-fi and nerdy sci-fi as it can be well, I mean that
0: scene in particular where they where they're floating up there in front of Mars, is a scene where they're one of the first moments where they really start to connect. you know, the two characters really start to connect, and that scene is about them, you know, starting to connect. so it is you know very much a romance romantic scene. And you know, you think of the romantic scene in the in other movies where they're watching the sunset. This is the idea, you know, and and they're floating. And, and it's in the script from the very beginning, it was in the script where, and it was early discussions of them kind of rising above the spaceship and being, seeing Mars and the, the warm glow of Mars reflecting on them. So, you know, it was something that we all were working towards from the very beginning and Chris, our director and uh, Jay, our, su- our visual effects supervisor was there. And, and of course, visual effects kind of did all the, you know, Mars and made it, that whole sequence come to life afterwards with, with uh, the spaceship and everything. And it looked phenomenal And that, but that was all from very the very beginning of prep that was all in discussion of how it would look and feel I think we and we storyboarded that scene and we did animatics of it and and kind of all knew what we were trying to achieve going into it
1: and how much of that movie I mean because there's such a VFX presence in that movie but how much of that movie was made practical we're getting to a point now where it's really hard to tell what's real and what's VFX you know we did there were a lot of visual effects in the film for sure but we didn't do a
0: lot of green screen work necessarily. We, that sequence that space them floating in space sequence was all we just built a big black void, you know of dubatine, you know, twenty by twenties and all around them, and ever much bigger than that. But we just kind of had them in floating by wires and different things, different ways of shooting it all in there, and then they kind of cleaned it up and added everything that they needed to. so that was the heaviest for sure of any sequence that would have been a big visual effect sequence, but then. Everything on the ship was pretty much, we just shot as it is, I And mean, we would put, we didn't do a lot of blue screen out the windows. We would put, again, just duvetyne out there so that it was black to start. And then when they need to add stars, they would just add stars and simple things like that. But it wasn't a heavy green screen show by any means because we built all the sets practically and tried to do as whatever we could in camera. But we knew where we had to rely on visual effects from the beginning. We tried to make sure that we were working with them very closely. The whole time, and they were fantastic, of course. So it it, it was only a benefit to us to to rely on what we needed with them. And then the sequence where Mar, where Walt is walking around on Mars terrain was, uh, we didn't use any blue screen or green screen, but we just shot it out on this like rock field out in Atlanta, and visual effects just literally would take everything away. They just rotoscoped all the trees away because there's nothing we could find that didn't have trees. So all the ground that you see is real, and then. color tree did it but otherwise like they just had to <laughs> clean up a lot of green or a lot of trees rather and uh and take yeah. it all away and put the new martian landscape in there but for example in, in Kobe's office at the end you see out to the mars landscape and that's that wasn't visual effects that was just an old photograph that was a big canvas with a print on it that we oh really yeah and we like like a translator something basically i mean we just it wasn't uh backlit it was front lid and it was just a you know it was something that we put a lot of actually care into finding the right way and we printed out multiple different types of images and color uh treatments of it and you know focus how much out of focus it would be based on the distance that we had. And then we would light it with different colors to try and find kind of what our Mars look was and and kind of make it all blend together. But that's all it ended up being was just a big, large print of the window that we that we were able to photograph. So the thing with green, if it was green or blue screen, it would have been just a little different. You know, we would have had to really, there would be a lot of cleanup. There's so many shine reflections in there. and And then you're kind of limiting to what you can look at sometimes and, and the discussion always becomes about the green and the, you know, how we kind of photograph it. But if we're able to look straight out there naturally and photograph everything, we can just be free of thinking that way and just move the camera how we need to in place it where we want it. So it made it much more uh, organic and a lot better for us, which I always want, you know, it's always better to be able to look at something out the windows than, than blue, you know.
1: Well, yeah. And and I mean, like being on a on a chroma key set all day long, I think is kind of exhausting for literally everyone. But I always feel the worst for the actors because, you know, it's like, hey, uh, you know, you're standing on a foreign planet and, you know, this tennis ball is a monster. Like it sucks all of their uh, imagination out. And I really do believe like it doesn't leave enough of a reservoir of it for them to act in the scene. Some people are amazing at it. Some people are not. And it's uh, it can be it can be so difficult. I I had one other film that I wanted to talk to you about, but it's a short film. It's the Neil Labute film, Black Chicks. And I just kind of wanted to find out, like, Neil Labute is such an interesting director, you know, going back to uh, his first feature in The Company of Men. And he's... Such a provocateur when he's firing on all cylinders, and I feel like th- this is kind of that. How did you end up working with Neil Abute on that? And uh, just talk about the choices. It's black and white. Like, it's it's a gorgeous-looking film, but it's, like, beautiful, kind of bloomy highlights, as I recall. But it's also, uh, you know, it's this Neil LaBute dialogue that's, like, transgressive and, and kind of, as an audience member, kind of puts you back on your heels. Just talk about, like, finding the right look for something that he's making. Well, I'll, I should start with the beginning. Like I worked with Neil on Van Helsing. He
0: was the showrunner of Van Helsing for the first two oh, years that I was I'm there. I'm sorry. I, sh- I should have known that. That's okay. So Neil and I, you know, became friends doing that show and had a, you know, good working relationship for a couple of years. And we shot Black Chicks in the middle of season two. But the reason that we did Black Chicks is because my wife, Nicole Lear, is a, she's a director, but she's also an actor. And she was reading black chicks it was actually called black girls his play is called black girls and um she was reading it and performing it on stage and she reached out to Neil and was like Neil I love this play I would love to do it can we make it into a film and he said well sure you know let's do it (laughs) I think there was a little more questions you know a little more discussion than that but basically he, he agreed to it and so I you know I came on to shoot it with him Nicole produced it and one of the first discussions that Neil and I had, he was, he was like, I, I'm done, you know, he's like, I'm down to do this, but I really think it should be black and white. And I was like, that seems like the perfect approach for it. And so that was just something that was clear from the very beginning, like right at the, at the top of discussions, you know, and then it was just kind of, it was something that came together fairly quick and it was really just, you know, the dialogue is so important and it's so powerful and the relationship between the two characters that you, I felt like, you just didn't want anything that would get in the way, you know, photography-wise, get in the way of, of what they're doing. So you don't want anything that's too flashy. You want it to kind of feel real and 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 just and just kind of allow these performances and these characters to kind of tell the story. And I knew Neil wanted to do, from working with him before, I, I know Neil, he loves to do long takes. He likes to run scenes all the way through. Um, he likes to kind of do it like a play. So that's how we, we approach it. And we'd shoot our master from, and, the, the, you know, if you've seen the film, it's, around 12 minutes from top to end and it's yeah we would do the master you know a two shot for example and that was they would run the whole thing you know the actors would just run the whole thing and then we move in and then we do one side and then the other side and they would run the whole thing from top to bottom and we did that film in i think like six hours we shot the whole thing around six hours. Oh wow it was great to do it just approaching it from a, a way where we could allow it to just unfold naturally and let the characters go through it over and over again in their own way on their own terms as far as pacing and how they wanted to do it was, was right. And I think the you know, we knew that from the very beginning. So, yeah. And I think from the time that we said we are going to do it to the time that we shot, it was not very long, under a month.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, in a weird way, it reminded me of his first film in the company of men, which I think he shot the whole thing in nine days, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, back on the, back in the film days. And I was a projectionist at a film festival when he came there. And I remember kind of asking him a bunch of questions because that movie was just so uh, dark and uh, provocative and really, really stayed with me. Well, cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we go, where can people find you online? I have an
0: Instagram a channel so you can find me there. It's just my name, Brennan Agama DP and uh, Facebook and Twitter.
1: And you also, I should I should say this, I feel like you should get extra props for this, because literally every cinematographer we have on here is like, yeah, I have this website, but I haven't touched it in a long time, so it's very out of date. Your website was extraordinarily up to date. Like, it, it was, you know, it, it had a lot of great stuff on it. I think it's a good layout for, like, how to make a cinematographer or any artist's website. Like, it's clean, clean. It, it's not complicated it gives a, a, an immediate sense of the kind of work that you do and, and it's just really well done and and it's up to date which it's very we all know it's hard to keep this stuff up to date especially when we're working as much as you are
0: yeah 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 i mean i actually it's funny because i just had to do a bit about a month ago i had to do a bunch of cleanup on it and get it up to date because it was a little data so you came to it just at the, at the right time <laughs> yeah
1: Well, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, when uh, when you have your next stuff out, let us know. We'll We'll have you back.
0: Sounds great. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, that was Brendan Wigama. Thank you so much, Brendan, for coming on to the show. Can't wait to see what you do next. All right, Ben. It's that time. Which time would that be? It's
2: the time that we skipped the last few weeks, in case anyone was paying attention. We, we haven't had any ads, but uh, we're back to doing ads, and we got to thank our fine sponsor, DZO. DZO, makers of cinema lenses, entry-level cinema lenses, all different varieties. And I'll tell you, if you go to their website, dzofilm.com. Oh man, you click on products, you will see all the different lines that they are uh, currently building. They have a new line, and uh, it does a couple of uh, interesting things. There's three lenses in it, and uh, they call it the Gnosis, or the Gnosis, the G-N-O-S-I-S, Gnosis lenses, and uh, it's three macro lenses. They got a 32, a 65, and a 90. They already had a 90, so I think for people out there who maybe own the Vespid Primes, They might be thinking about adding like the 32 and the 65 to get some Mm. extra coverage, but if you didn't buy the Vespids, they've got. A ninety, And here's something that's different about this line, and this is going to be uh, Greek for some people out there who are not following the, the closer details of cinematography. But in addition to the industry standard PL mount, the introductory, uh, maybe more uh, prosumer standard of EF mount, they also have adopted the newer professional standard called LPL. So these are the first uh, DZO lenses available in LPL, PL, and EF mount. And uh, yeah, so no matter what type of camera you are working with. A mount exists and an adapter to get to your camera. And they're very fine lenses, and all the technical details are there. And, of course, you can get them over from your friends at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. Yep. That's where to do that. That's, that's where to do that. That's right. That's, that, that would be the best place
1: by far. <laughs> yeah. By far. By far.
2: And now, short ends. So Ben, we've reached our end of the show. Short ends. What is your obsession? What is your short end this week?
1: Well, I just want to say, like, I'm really happy for Brendan Fraser, who's having kind of a career renaissance right now. Even though uh, the Batgirl movie was '86 and he was the main bad guy in that, but at I believe it was the Venice Film Festival, he got a standing ovation for his lead role in the Darren Aronofsky film The Whale. And Darren Aronofsky seems to be one of those people who kind of specializes in career resurrections, probably most noteworthily with Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler. And that one was maybe a little short-lived, maybe because Mickey Rourke is not the easiest fella to work with.
2: He does have that reputation. I have heard one
1: or two stories. But uh, they have not yet released a trailer uh, that I have seen for the whale but brendan fraser you know it, it's a weird business because i feel like brendan fraser was someone who did a lot of really great work a lot of really famous popular work so like great work his great work I george would, of the jungle george, well i i would put the mummy movies as like his <laughs> encino man <laughs> encino man was his first movie so uh you know he, biodome he, uh he got to was biodome him
2: I actually don't remember I believe
1: Biodome was Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin. Damn it. I think we need to leave that in. you're right.
2: You're right. It was Stephen Baldwin. Look at that.
1: Lumping (laughs) him in with uh, Polly Shore because Encino Man was Pauly Shore. (laughs) That's
2: right. I I thought they did a series of movies together, but maybe not.
1: But like, did you ever see Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen? No, never saw that. Fucking Masterpiece. I mean, just a brilliant movie, top to bottom, and he's amazing in it. And Ian McKellen is great in it too. And that's like, I mean, like Ian McKellen's been a star for a long time, but that was like pre Lord of the Rings, which I feel like made Ian McKellen took him from being a star to a mega, mega superstar. That in X Men. Oh, and how can we forget School Ties? Excellent movie. Anyway, but okay. but the thing about him is like he even did a movie years ago called The Quiet American, which I think Michael Caine was in. Mm. Uh, he's, I think. A really great actor and someone who, for whatever reason, the industry just decided uh, they'd had enough of him probably, you know, 15 years ago or so. And uh, he kept working, but in movies that you haven't seen and I haven't seen. And I'm actually really excited to see what he's done with Darren Aronofsky, uh, shot by our friend, Matty Lee who's whose work with Darren Aronofsky has been some of my favorite filmmaking in general you know since i was in college so I'm, I'm very excited to see that and excited to see if that ends up being kind of a career you know like a like a third act for brendan fraser where he gets to go be sort of a more character actor than hunky handsome leading man and uh you know i don't know maybe he'll get a law and order svu spinoff or something that he mm-hmm. can be the lead in or maybe uh maybe he'll get to be you know a big movie star again, or even you know, like a uh, name character actor that gets you know above the title type billing.
2: Uh, well, it certainly stranger things
1: have happened, and uh, you know he's
2: he's been around for a long time, and it's true he has done some really good work. But uh, you know, I, I don't think you should sell Encino Man short. <laughs> so. I'm not, did I sell Encino <laughs> no. Man short? You said it was his first movie. So.
1: I said it was his first movie. Uh, I will admit, I he was I, also in Airheads. I'm not, you know. I don't mind Airheads. <laughs> okay,
2: good. I have never seen Airheads. Airheads—that's
1: uh, uh, s- same director as Heather's. Oh, it looks
2: like he did a couple of things before Encino Man, but uh, but yeah, it looks like that was his first starring role.
1: Yeah, that was his first starring role, and Poly Shore was you know white hot at the time. Sure was. I I at the time did not understand why, and still don't. I, you know, I gotta say, I saw him at
2: Sundance a few years ago. And uh, he had an entourage. He had people, hang, you know, hanging out with him. It was, you know, it was. It could have been, you know, 1992 all over again. Uh,
1: good for him. I have never heard that he's not a nice person. You know, so uh, go, go, poly Shore. I heard he was a classically trained ballerina, actually, for real.
2: Yeah, he studied ballet. There's a video of him dancing ballet out there somewhere, which I think is. Kind of wonderful, interesting. Didn't yeah. he do the? I guess voice- you're not
1: technically a ballerina if you're a dude. Wasn't he I mean. the voice of Pinocchio or something in a in a very recent animated feature?
2: I don't know the answer to that, but
1: it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> wouldn't it see. was it was a. I'm sorry, this is a super weird tangent. <laughs> yeah,
2: we're really you, we're gone from Brendan Fraser now over to Polly Shore, and now we're going down a tangent of the Polly Shore animated voiceover yeah. acting and, so. and
1: we we both know that paulie shore is more of a close focus kind of a person he really than, is than short end. we
2: should not be short ending this so, so
1: anyway congratulations to brendan fraser and presumably to darren aronofsky who he's made movies i've loved he's made movies i haven't loved he's never made a boring movie i haven't seen all his movies
2: but uh i i'm gonna say for all the ones i have seen that's true I have seen all of his movies. I know. I know you have, Mister. I've got a giant uh, pie poster on my wall.
1: I know. I it was a little. I felt a little nerdy telling that to Maddie Lee Bateek. If you come to my house, there is one movie poster, and it's pie. You know what, though? It is an awesome poster. So I, I got. I got no criticism
2: for you. It is an awesome, awesome poster. If he, if Maddie ever goes over right to your house, you should make him sign it.
1: It'll. It would be uh, the geekiest moment of my it, life. It'd be pre- pretty fun though. So anyway, Ilya, what is your short end this week? Uh, My short end is a new series
2: on Netflix called Keep Breathing. Now, I should say, don't confuse Keep Breathing with Still Breathing, which is a Brendan Fraser movie, or The Air I Breathe. Another Brendan Fraser. That's movie. true. That our but, uh, our, our uh, th- friend
1: uh, co-wrote Bob DeRosa, that, co-wrote the air I breathe. That's
2: that's very true. So, uh, but keep breathing is a wonderful story that uh, I binged four episodes last night, and I think that the first three episodes were shot by John Joffen. I'll have to double check that, and the fourth episode uh, was a, a, a friend of mine, uh, Alicia Robbins. She's she shot that, and boy, all of them look spectacular. And it's what, a good. What, what,
1: what's the pitch? What's the show?
2: Okay, so. Um, You've seen shows like this before. Great pitch, great start. Yeah, I was going to say, but I was going to say that It seems to handle the genre very deftly. It's so easy to make this particular genre go down this hackneyed. You've seen it a million times before, but it's a plane crash with a sole survivor story. Mm. And it's in the wilderness, uh, presumably somewhere in Alaska where there's no cell phone reception and, you know, really out in the middle of nowhere. And a uh, big city lawyer has to kind of like figure out how she is going to survive in the wild with essentially very little little, uh, very little resources. And there's a wonderful, it does feel a little bit like Lost, but it's not totally like Lost, Like interweaving of, uh, you know, backstory. And it's not very, it's not told in an entirely linear fashion. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, they do a really, really good job with things that could have come off as feeling like uh yeah you know here here's the obligatory moment where this happens it doesn't feel that way it mm. feels if they, they did a good job of keeping it fresh and I think they have a they, that they do a really good job with the writing of making it still feel like this is completely unlikely and not a realistic situation for most people in the in their lifetime but if it happened to you how would you deal with it and I got to say they I think they do a pretty good job excellent yeah. it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Keep breathing, and uh, you know, depending on if I can get all the stuff I need to get done tonight, I may finish the series. Since it's only six episodes, short series. Really like it. It's worth watching.
1: Excellent, excellent.
2: Yeah. All right, so Ben, that about does it. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you somewhere on the interwebs?
1: Easiest place is benrock.com. Just benrock.com. You you could actually message me from there, and it'll get to my email. Or you can uh, find my many socials, uh, including uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Feel free to say hi. Match.com. No. Sorry. <laughs> my OnlyFans.
2: Your OnlyFans, yes. I, I I knew about your OnlyFans. My OnlyFans <laughs> and
1: my GoFundMe.
2: <laughs> Which is for a new Only OnlyFans? What's, what's your favorite? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I don't mean to make fun of OnlyFans, Ilya, Where uh, can people find you?
2: OnlyFans, of course. Yes. No, um, actually, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, HotRodCameras Where we are right now in the same room, I can't it's, even believe it. It's I it's mean, like it's
1: blowing my mind. Yeah,
2: I mean, we are just uh, feet apart, inches apart, we're and
1: pro- like sharing all kinds of pandemics. We we probably
2: we probably should be further back, but no, we're ignoring it. We're only probably like you know uh, sixty seven inches or something like that. So.
1: Yeah, we're giving each other, uh, you know, co- COVID um, Omicron BA seven and and monkeypox too.
2: But I, I feel really good about this because this is fun. We have not actually, you know, I I, I saw stand up comedy this week, which was crazy. Ooh, I know you it's see? Eliza Schlesinger, mm. which uh, I she's also on Netflix. She's actually queen of Netflix. I had actually never heard of her before this uh, this this show, and she was the headlining act. And boy, did she kill! In like twenty minutes, she had the whole place absolutely roaring. It was it was incredible. So. that's awesome anyway but yeah and uh, I haven't done that since pre-pandemic it was pretty fun going out to a comedy show Gotta I, say, I, I went like... to a
1: comedy show for my birthday saw Blaine Kapach, who oh. is, I'm like the nerdiest Blaine Kapach fan
2: alright and and
1: yeah he was great five stars alright F- five uh, I'd give him ten stars he's, he's brilliant all
2: right so so Ben let's thank some people who do we have to thank this week
1: well let's go ahead and start with Ben Katz uh Ben who at least didn't have to sync up our two files because they right. were in one card uh this time let's thank Kaze Alatrachi who composed every scrap of music that you have heard on here uh check him out at musicbyks.com and please just send him any message at all even if it's just curse words just send him a bunch <laughs> of curse words and
2: uh, an interview with Kay's is imminent. so if you are uh, tuning in and want to actually hear Kay's speak uh, make sure you're, you're paying attention next yeah, week
1: already recorded yeah already recorded. I think it's I think it's gonna happen next week. It's pretty awesome. And uh, lastly but never leastly we need to thank our intrepid hardworking producer Alana Cody who's got even more kickass interviews coming up very very soon.
2: All of that is true. All right Ben uh, I think there's nothing left to say but thanks for listening
1: All right.